Welcome to another edition of What the Cross Means to Me, devotional program. This is your host, Rob Holt, coming to you from the KKXX Studios, Life Radio, Chico 104.5 and AM 930. It is good to be with you as we contemplate fresh perspectives on the meaning of the cross. I am not a theologian, but have been a photographer for over 30 years. And if a picture tells a thousand words, then yes, I guess you can say I preach to the glory of our Creator by capturing and sharing what the Creator has created. My mission is to share the gospel through my imagery, spoken word, and the written word. This program fulfills the spoken part, and the imagery utilized for this devotional are of a singular cross on a lonely hill, shot over a two-year period. The written word for this program is from a book I published about that cross collection. It matches 30 original images with 30 original essays from a wide spectrum of Christian leaders sharing their insights on the cross. The book shares the same name as this program, What the Cross Means to Me, by Harvest House Publishers. Each week we read one of the essays and ponder the wider meaning of the cross through the lens of Scripture. This week's devotional is the 34th and last episode in this series of excerpts from What the Cross Means to Me. This journey has been a blessing for me and I pray it has been for you as well. There will be a 35th episode and beyond but the format will be based around the images in the book instead of the essays. It will focus on the imagery of the picture and the image name that will provide the inspiration for that episode's deep dive devotional. And this last episode, ending the first series, is not an essay, but an excerpt from the book The Imitation of Christ by Thomas A. Kempis was a German monk who also became ordained as a priest in 1413. He was described as kind and affable towards all, especially the sorrowful and the afflicted, constantly engaged in his favorite occupation of reading, writing, or prayer. In time of recreation, for the most part, silent and recollected, finding it difficult even to express an opinion on matters of mundane interest, but pouring out a ready torrent of eloquence and passion when the conversation turned on God or the concerns of the soul. Remarkable for its simple language and style, it emphasizes the spiritual rather than the materialistic life, affirms the rewards of being Christ-centered, and supports communion as a means of strengthening faith. His writings offer the best representation of the Devotia Moderna, the modern devotional, that made religion intelligible, practical, and better understood for the modern attitude arising in the Netherlands and northern Germany at the end of the 14th century. Kempis stresses asceticism rather than mysticism, and moderate, not extreme, austerity. In other words, Thomas stressed a lifestyle characterized by abstinence from various pleasures 
rather than the practices of religious habits and ecstasies. He was often reported as saying when excusing himself, My brethren, I must go. Someone is waiting to converse with me in my cell. A cell? What does that mean? Was he in jail? No, during those days, monks referred to their quarters that they meditated in as their cell, a root word for celestial, a place where heaven meets earth. With this introduction, let us begin the excerpt from the Imitation of Christ. It is the cross of salvation. In the cross is life. In the cross is protection against our enemies. In the cross is infusion of heavenly sweetness. In the cross is strength of mind. In the cross, virtue. In the cross, the perfection of sanctity. There is no salvation of the soul, nor hope of everlasting life, but in the cross. Take up, therefore, thy cross, and follow Jesus. And thou shalt go into life everlasting. He went before, bearing his cross, and died for you on the cross, that you might also bear your cross and desire to die on the cross with him. For if you be dead with him, you shall also live with him. And if you be his companion in punishment, then you shall be partaker with him also in glory. Behold, in the cross all doth consist, and all lieth in our dying thereon. For there is no other way unto life and unto true inward peace but the way of the Holy Cross. Go where you wilt, seek whatever you will. You shall not find a higher way above nor a safer way below than the way of the Holy Cross. That ends the excerpt, The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Kempis, included in the book, What the Cross Means to Me. There's a poem following this excerpt by Andrew Murray, which must take his cross as my own. I must be crucified with him. It is as I abide daily, deeply, in Jesus, the crucified one, that I shall taste the sweetness of his love, the power of his life, the completeness of his salvation. That poem ties in nicely with this Kempis excerpt and the image. The image accompanying this excerpt is the foreshadow, which is shot from the earliest days of shooting the cross collection. I'm shooting the cross far enough back that you get a great view of the surrounding area, which is completely covered in amber-colored grass 
about three feet high. It's the kind of grass that you see late in the summer, not just around the cross, but as far as the eye can see, until you get to the horizon line of the sky, which then begins a gradation of a brownish, smoggy haze to an amber haze to a light blue haze, and then a normal deep blue sky. I am shooting from the back of the pickup truck I used to have, and thus I was high enough to see beyond and past the little bluff the cross is planted on. And since the day, the time of day was around 6 p.m., the angle of the sun casts a distinct shadow behind it, a very long shadow of the cross extending from the base and away from the white wooden cross. And why the reason for the name, the foreshadow? Well, when naming an image, sometimes I put a lot of thought and prayer into it, and sometimes the name is just immediately inspired inside of me. In this case, the word foreshadow was what I immediately felt the name should be. Most likely because there is a shadow cross. But sometimes what seems like a hunch is really inspiration. Why? Because the concept of foreshadowing is in the gospel story and more, even the story of humankind, as we read in Romans 5, 13 through 15. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam who is a foreshadow of the one to come. St. Paul elaborates on this perception in Hebrews 10, where he says, The law is only a foreshadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, they would not have stopped being offered. For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. Unquote. Jesus said, sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, you were not pleased with them, but they were offered in accordance with the law. Wow. Then he said that he was the substitution for that sacrificial system. So St. Paul is saying that the mechanism under Hebrew law for covering sin was something that had to be continually repeated as it only applied to what had just led up to it. And yet Jesus claimed that he is that sacrificial lamb covering sin once and for all, even mistakes and sins not yet committed. Does this mean we are free to sin? No. If we are truly grateful for the sacrifice for us, then we should be willing to die to ourselves and carry our own cross daily, and to actually cling to the cross, just like Peter Pan's shadow. Once it was stitched on him, it clung to him. And when we stitch ourselves to Jesus, we become a shadow of him. And we become a foreshadow to those that we are a witness to. And with that background, 
We see that it ties in with today's devotional on the excerpt from The Imitation of Christ. Now, in the annals of Christianity, The Imitation of Christ is widely considered to be the second most read book in the world, following the Bible. Its its influence on the subsequent religious literature throughout all time since then cannot be overstated. Yet, modern Christians, like myself, before I included it in this book, I was unaware of it. It seems that human nature leads many to think that the thoughts, books, and science of an earlier time is inherently inferior to that of the present, just because it's older. Well, this was dubbed chronological snobbery by Owen Barfield. In fact, when it comes to books, C.S. Lewis said that it is a good rule of thumb that for every new book that we read, we should purposely engage in reading an old book. Now, way before there was the Oswald Chambers book, My Utmost for His Highest, or other noted devotional writers, a disciple in the 1400s and 1500s who longed to follow Jesus would naturally have read The Imitation of Christ. It was said to have been written to other monks in the pre-Reformation times, and the first handwritten manuscript started appearing around 1427. But its popularity was immediate. It was written out to 745 times before 1650. As I mentioned, apart from the Bible, no book has been translated into more languages than The Imitation of Christ. By 1779, there was at least 1,800 editions and many translations. John Wesley translated a version in the 1700s. There are still a number of translations available in print. The Pure Gold Classic Version by Harold Chadwick, Bridge Lagos Publishers, 1999, is currently the most popular. Occasionally makes references to doctrines of the Catholic Church that are contrary to some Protestant views. But most of the material about becoming like Christ is what the pure gold classic version focuses on and when translating these passages so that they are relevant to all Christians regardless of specific doctrines. Now keep in mind, the imitation of Christ is not scripture, just like my utmost for his highest is not scripture. But because of the heart of these writers and their commitment to be true to Scripture's teachings, we can benefit from commentary and teaching, reflect on the gift of wisdom given each for his or her day and time, wisdom that is relevant to all people for all time. It has been said that Thomas used or alluded to more than a thousand Scriptures in this work. Often his words read like Proverbs. His work, therefore, should be read like, in short segments, allowing time for reflection and meditation. The text is divided into four large chapters, which provide detailed spiritual instructions. There is helpful counsels of the spiritual life, directives for the interior life, on interior consolation, and on the blessed sacrament or communion. The approach taken in the imitation is characterized by its emphasis on interior life and withdrawal from the world. The book places a high level of emphasis on the devotion of the Eucharist, what we refer to today as the communion, as a key element of spiritual life. Now, if you liked Oswald Chambers' ability to capture profound truths in compact statements, consider these from Kempis. We are all frail, but you should... Think of no one being frailer than yourself. 
If you desire to benefit from the scriptures, read with humility, simplicity, and faithfulness. Never desire to become known as a Bible scholar. True peace of heart, therefore, is gotten by resisting your passions, not by obeying them. There is no peace of heart in a carnal person, nor the person that is addicted to outward things. But there is peace in the heart of a spiritual and devout person. Next one. Yet we must be watchful, especially in the beginning of temptation. The enemy is more easily overcome in the beginning if he is not allowed to enter the door of our hearts, but is resisted outside the gate at his first knock. When he is not resisted, little by little, he gets complete entrance. Next one. The more time you spend in your secret place, the more you will like it. The less time you will spend there, the more you will loathe it. Now let me touch on an excerpt from the first chapter, a section referred to as despising all vanities on earth. Quote, He who follows me walks not in darkness, says the Lord. But these words of Christ are advised to imitate his life and habits. If we wish to be truly enlightened and free from all blindness of heart. Let our chief effort, therefore, be to study the life of Jesus Christ. The teaching of Christ is more excellent than all the advice of the saints, and he who has his spirit will find it in hidden manna. Now, there are many who hear the gospel often, but care little for it, because they have not the spirit of Christ. Yet whoever wishes to understand fully the words of Christ must try to pattern his whole life on that of Christ. We are called, regardless of what state in life, whether we be married, consecrated, or single, to be other Christs in this world. It is not what we do or do not achieve on a temporal level, but the quality of our love, the quality of our service, the quality of our being, that is so often seen by God alone. Nevertheless, on this tempestuous sea of life, we need the example of witnesses to whom we can look and upon whom we can pattern our own choices. Some witnesses may have a great appeal, others less, but God can make all speak to us. But if we do not pray and endeavor to be open, Scripture should be our prime spiritual food. But also very beneficial are those writings and treatises passed down to us from generation to generation for our edification. It is part of what we call the sacred tradition in the church. My approach to this is to see it through the eyes and the heart of Christ. Would he not, does he not, draw us constantly to his Father, whom we encounter so intimately in the Gospels? We become whom we focus upon. It is not enough to assent to what Christ has said. It is also a call to put his words in action. In Christ's teachings, we find that hidden manna, food for our souls, our lives, and our journey from wandering in the desert of this world to the very throne of the Most High God himself. Let us pray that we may be consumed in love with the Spirit of Christ. Today, St. Francis reminds us it is time for us to begin anew because in reality, we have not yet begun. Wow. Let us ponder another excerpt from the first chapter of the Imitation of Christ. 
What good does it do to speak learnedly about the Trinity if, lacking humility, you displease the Trinity? Indeed, it is not learning that makes a man holy and just, but a virtuous life which makes him pleasing to God. I would rather feel contrition than know how to define it. For what would it profit us to know the whole Bible by heart and the principle of all the philosophers if we live without grace and the love of God? Vanity of vanities, it is all vanity except to love God and to serve him. Later on in that section, he continues, Learning clearly has an important place in our lives. Indeed, God gave us an intellect to use for his glory. Unfortunately, so much of us, we find that learning is both abused and misused. We can look at the world around us and see the evil, and we can see the evil ends to which learning has been twisted and manipulated and with tragic consequences. Such brilliance culminating in such tragedy. Our stores abound with books on religion or spiritual knowledge at a price, however questionable the knowledge acquired. And once acquired, how often misused. Some people can quote chapter and verse and even teach the Bible for a price, but are totally unwilling to put God's word into practice. He concludes, not everyone can be learned. God knows this. He apportions his gifts as he wills, but everyone can be humble, and it is the humble who are heard by God. With humility comes a deeper realization of our need of God and his grace. The learned, the proud, and the arrogant have ever been at odds with God. Quote, I thank you, Father, that you have kept these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to the little ones. Unquote. It is not in virtue of our knowing, but in the virtue of our loving that God reveals his secrets. Did not scripture say that Mary kept all these things in her heart, not in her head. Empty your head and open your heart if you would know God. And that's how he concludes that section. So the reason I read all that is some people live their life with religious and Christian head knowledge, and some people do incredible things in the kingdom of heaven with nothing more than heart knowledge. There was one excerpt that I really liked in section two. It says, this is the greatest wisdom to seek the kingdom of heaven through contempt of the world. It is vanity, therefore, to seek and trust in riches that perish. It is vanity also to court honor and to be puffed up with pride. It is vanity to follow the lust of the body and to desire things for which severe punishment later must come. It is vanity to wish for long life and care little about a well-spent life. It is vanity to be concerned with the present only and not to make provisions for things to come. It is vanity to love what passes quickly and not to look ahead where eternal joy abides. Remember the proverb, the eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Ecclesiastes 1.8. Try, moreover, to turn your heart from the love of things visible and bring yourself to things invisible. For they who follow their own evil passions stain their consciousness and lose the grace of God. Wow. He, con he continues, God has made all things good. All things flow out from his goodness. 
The contempt of the world expressed here is to be understood in the spirit of St. Paul, who tells us that by comparison the things of God, everything else is simple rubbish, good for nothing except the landfill. The things of God and the things of this world are incomparable. In light of this immense disparity, we must set the priority of our heart upon God and his kingdom. Everything else is destined to ruin everything and all things will pass. We see this so clearly when we begin to grasp how quickly our own lives are passing. Vanity is the state of pointlessness or futility, and so it is vanity to set all our hopes, to invest all of our trusts upon the things of this present world. It is a sobering reality that we can virtually lose all of our worldly goods overnight, and even our health. We must come to understand that it is the quality of our love that matters, how we love that matters, and how we serve others that matters. In focusing upon God and others, we lose focus on ourselves. As we read in that proverb, human senses are never satisfied, nor can they ever be. We never learn the vanity of it all, the inherent futility of it all, if we're too busy squandering our own lives on ourselves. For the Christian, then, as now, it is quite the opposite. We come to realize that all that God created is intended as a sacrament that will lead us to Him and not to ourselves. There's a John Michael Talbot song that I like titled Laudable Exchange, where he stylizes the words of St. Clair. Quote, oh, wondrous exchange, to exchange the things of time for those of eternity. Both things of eternity, of heaven, where Jesus came from and returned, and is at the right hand of his Father. Let us emulate Jesus day by day and moment by moment. If you are a Christian, have you been living in this perspective? If not, I suggest you meditate on clinging to the cross to become a shadow of the cross as you die to yourself daily. Doing so removes doubt, fear, and pain and provides the faith needed to endure every trial and strength to sacrifice whatever you are called to, as Jesus did, for the kingdom of God. Go, be that shadow of Christ today. And if you are not a Christian yet, I suggest you consider accepting the incredible sacrifice Jesus made for you, contemplating what Jesus did for you. Read the crucifixion accounts in the Bible and consider asking God to refine your soul and heal your heart. Ask Jesus to walk with you and fill you with his love and joy today. And with that, go in grace and may God keep you in his perfect peace. Thanks for listening to What the Cross Means to Me devotional program. Heard every week on KKXX Life Radio. If you'd like to view the image discussed, like this excerpt's image, The Foreshadow, along with my other versepirations, then check out Magi Cross on Instagram. And if your church, youth group, or school would like to learn how to fundraise through the Magi Cross products, hear other cross podcast or read further meditative musings on the cross through my blog then log on to magicross.com that is m a j i c r o s s.com